Welcome to the Maranatha Baptist Church Podcast. It is our prayer that this sermon from God's Word will be a blessing to you and will grow your love for Jesus Christ. We would encourage you to use it only as a supplement to your regular intake of God's Word in your local church. If you need help connecting with a local church, please reach out to us on our website, mbcgrimes.org. Amen. Love the words of that song. And uh, the picture, the beautiful picture that it paints for us of God's faithful love and that indeed he does hold us fast. The gospel, the, the truth that God saw us while we were yet sinners and while we were yet sinners demonstrated his love by sending his son Jesus to die for us and that Jesus bore the sins of the world on his shoulders, died on the cross, paid for them in full, rose again from the grave, offers us salvation freely by faith. God offers this salvation. This is the proof that no matter what happens, no matter what goes on in life, he holds us fast. It's based on the work of Christ, and we see forever his love proved at the cross. These truths are encouraging to us. And yet, there are times in life, we have to acknowledge, there are times in life when though we know He holds us fast, our circumstances are such that it doesn't feel like He's holding us fast. We face a a difficulty, a challenge, maybe it's a a health struggle, maybe it's something going on at work, maybe it's somebody who's just out to get you for, for who knows what reason. Different circumstances that we face and we go through those times and feels like we're not in his grip any longer. This is the kind of scenario that the Apostle Paul was going through. I, I just imagine. Does it really feel like God's in control if you're sitting in prison for two years? And, and the opportunities you do get to share the gospel with Felix, he just kind of rejects it and sends you back to prison. And then the governor changes, right? And maybe there's this thought in Paul's mind like, okay, this is it. My chance to get out of here. The new governor is going to realize that I'm, I'm innocent and he's going to let me go. And then he leaves him in prison. I mean, these are the kinds of circumstances where you don't feel like God is holding you fast. But the apostle Paul walks through this with great faith. This section of Scripture, verses 1 through 12, is a little bit like the book of Esther. We don't see you know, God's name mentioned directly too many times, but we do see God at work behind the scenes. As we walk through three different scenes of this text, I want you to notice how things go differently than expected the scene will sort of begin to unfold and it sort of leads to the end of that scene and sort of an expected outcome. Like, well, this happened, this happened, this happened, then this should happen next. But it's actually this that happens next. And I think that's where we see God's sovereign hand in this story. When it should be unfolding one way and God sovereignly directs it to unfold a different way than expected. And God is watching over Paul, and Paul knows that as he walks through this. So our theme as as we work through this text is that in God's sovereign care, no one can harm us. It's really true. In God's sovereign care, no one can harm us. Now, I need to qualify that a little bit because when we use the word harm, I mean that no one can ultimately harm us. Our eternal destiny, our eternal good, the glory that God is working in us, even through the trials of this earth, 
No one can touch that, right? Peter, in, uh, in 1 Peter, calls it our inheritance, incorruptible and undefiled, which does not fade away for you who are kept by the power of God. So when we use that word harm, I'm, I'm talking about God's eternal good that he's doing in our lives. Nobody can touch it. Nobody can harm us. And even even the harmful things that may happen in this life, like physical pain or discomfort or health issues. It may even be that God has in his plan for a person to suffer for the name of Christ, even to be martyred. These things happen to believers. But we remember with a sovereign God that even those aspects of suffering are are restrained and tempered and shaped by the hands of a loving God. And even as we walk through those times of harm, we've not left his hands. And the things that happen to us are for our good and for his glory, and it's never more than he wants to allow for our good. And so we can trust him through those times. Our God is sovereign. Well, let's walk through this text and kind of watch how it unfolds with the Apostle Paul and see why it's so important that we know and trust this statement that in God's sovereign care, no one can harm us. The first thing we're going to see in in scene one is that God is greater than the manipulative tactics of wicked men. In this scene, you'll, you'll notice how some wicked men seek to manipulate Festus, but God remains sovereign and in control even over their manipulation. So we pick up the story in verse one of Acts chapter 25. And Festus has come to the province. The the governor's seat in that region was in Caesarea where Paul is being kept in prison. And so after just three days in office, verse one tells us, he already decides to make a trip down to Jerusalem. The new governor is getting a lay of the land, and maybe he heard from Felix that Jerusalem tends to be a pretty volatile city. So early on in his governorship, he heads down to Jerusalem and spends a few days there. Well, wouldn't you know it, in verse 2, while Festus is there, uh, the Jews, the high priest and, and some other of the chief men, they come to Festus, and they begin talking to him about Paul. It says specifically, they inform him against Paul. This means they're throwing false accusations against Paul toward Festus. Paul did this, and he did this. Remember earlier, they called him a plague, right? Paul's, he's horrible, right? You have him in prison, we'll we'll just, we'll fill you in on all the details. Felix is the one who put him in prison, and he deserves to die, and, you know, so they're, they're going on and on about these things that they think Festus should do to put him to death. But actually, in verse 3, we read that they ask a favor of Festus. New governor, you know, they want to get in good with the governor. Would you do us a favor, right? Would you summon him to come down to Jerusalem so, you know, he can be tried here. We'll testify, you're here, we're here. Let's just call Paul down and we'll get this trial taken care of. But we're told in verse three that their secret plan was to lay an ambush along the road and to kill him. Two whole years have gone by and that's still their plan. 
right? I don't know if this is the same 40 guys who, uh, you know, took that uh, murderous diet, right? We won't eat until we kill him. Uh, apparently, they got out of that vow somehow. And, but these Jews are still trying to put him to death. And so they ask Festus to do them a favor, bring him down to Jerusalem so they can kill him on the road. Now, at this point in the scene, it becomes pretty clear what will probably happen next, right? New governor uh, wants to have good relationship with the Jews in Jerusalem. He's getting used to his territory. He doesn't know all the information about Paul, so why would he not believe what they're telling him? I mean, these are religious men. Surely they're not lying, right? So all of this is pointing to that it would make sense for Festus to listen to their advice, to agree with their request, and to call Paul down to Jerusalem, right? That's one man being transported opposed to Festus and the whole Sanhedrin having to go all the way up to Caesarea. So, I mean, it just makes sense. Festus is probably going to decide, all right, Paul, you come down. We'll do the trial here, and it'll go forward that way. But here's our first turn of events that goes differently than we would expect. Festus in verse 4 actually answers that Paul is going to stay in Caesarea, and that he's going to return to Caesarea. And then in verse 5, he actually summons those with authority to also come to Caesarea to have a fair trial. So against all odds, Festus hasn't listened to their lies. He's not going to cater to their favor. He asks them all to come to Caesarea, and Paul's going to have a fair trial. Again, this is completely unexpected because we see later in the text in verse 9 that Festus actually does want to do the Jews a favor. So again, it's hard to explain. Why would Festus make a decision like this? I think it's just a little clue that God's sovereign hand behind the scenes working the situation to care for Paul, to protect him actually in Roman custody and not allow the Jews to put him to death on the road in that transfer. As they try to manipulate Festus, God is greater than the manipulative tactics of these wicked men. Many of you know, Carrie and I had the chance this week to uh, go to Florida on a little planning retreat, working through uh, church life. We're coming to the end of the book of Acts. We've got to figure out what we're going to do after that, right? Some of these kinds of things. So we were in Florida for the week, warmer temperatures. We tried our best to bring warm weather back, and clearly we failed miserably. So uh, apologies for that. Uh, this was a, uh, a hotel stay that we actually got for free, which was super great. Uh, the only catch was, you've done these before, right? The only catch was you had to listen to a two-hour presentation about yada, yada, yada. So, um, so we went to this presentation. We've actually done this one before with this company. Uh, I don't know how we got in again. That's pretty great, but I'll take a free trip. No big deal. The last time we heard this presentation from the same company, it was actually one of the best presentations I've ever heard. Uh, the guy, there was, there was no manipulative tactics. He just kind of laid out, hey, this is how it works. If you're interested in doing it, great. If not, hey, have a great rest of your trip, and we'll see you later. It was, it was short, sweet, and to the point. And so we were kind of expecting that again, like, oh, yeah, this is going to be great. Well, we had a different salesperson this time, and uh, she was a little more mm, ambitious, we'll say. And, and so after the initial presentation, we sat down with her and began talking with her. And like I said, we'd been through the presentation before, and we actually really respected this company and their program, which is not something we were interested in buying into. 
However, she assumed that we didn't like the company and we didn't like the program. So she uh, spent a, a lengthy amount of time trying to convince us of something that we kind of already agreed with. You know, it's like, hey, we're on the same page. You don't have to. Well, then she found out I was a pastor. And uh, she happened to be a Christian of a different denomination. And so then she began to use scripture to try to persuade me. Um, that buying into this vacation program was the best stewardship, you know, something along the lines of, well, if you're going to spend vacation money, right, you, you might as well spend it the best way possible, get the, the best deal possible, which is our program. And so really the only way to be a good steward of God's resources is to be an owner in our program. And I was like, okay, now I know for sure we're not buying into your program, Right. The, uh, the manipulative tactics were coming out, and that's not a pleasant feeling, is it? When others try to kind of control you with their words and so forth. You, you've been in scenarios like that. It's not fun. Isn't it good to know that we have a God who is greater than the manipulative tactics of men? The temptation in those moments is for us to kind of use our own manipulative tactics back at them, right? To try to start this fight for control. Who's got more powerful words here? Who's in charge? Who can do this or not do that? But in this text, we're reminded that there's a sovereign God behind the scenes who's greater. And no matter how men might try to manipulate a scenario, God remains in control. Nothing that people do can pull us, snatch us out of his steady grip. And I'm so thankful for that. We're, we're surrounded by these kinds of manipulative tactics. You've encountered them maybe at work. Sometimes it happens with churches, right? Maybe even as our church seeks to build in the community here, it's possible that we'll face uh, you know, a few extra hurdles from companies and other, t- other things like that. that. Those kinds of things happen. But isn't it good to know that there's a sovereign God who's greater than those things? Maybe you face lies at the workplace, people saying things that aren't true about you to hold you back. Maybe uh, bribes and favors have become commonplace in your uh, circles, and so you feel like you have to do favors. You know, you scratch my back, I'll scratch your back kinds of things in order to get ahead. Maybe you face threats. One of the common manipulative tactics that we face today as Christians is actually has to do with the word love. Our culture today has redefined what love is, and it's become actually a manipulative tactic. Love is said to be merely affirmation. And so as Christians who, you know, we've claimed to be a loving people, right, Uh, But then we don't affirm somebody's choices, and so they come back at us with something along the lines of, well, you don't love me. It's hard to hear words like that, and it's good to listen to words like that and, you know, consider, well, maybe I'm not. Maybe I do need to, to hear what they're saying. But it can also be a manipulative tactic where just because you're not affirming what they want, all of a sudden love is being used against you. See, this kind of thing happens around us. We face it. People use words all the time to try to manipulate and gain power. But it's encouraging to remember that God is greater than all these things. He's sovereign over all of them. We can press forward, obeying his word, trusting his sovereignty. No amount of manipulative force can change his plan. He's above manipulation. He will keep his promises. He will always come through. And so, friends, we can trust him. 
That's our big response to the theme today. In God's sovereign hands, no one can harm us, so trust him. Trust him. Rest in his grip. When others use manipulative tactics, you don't have to squirm and fight back or try to use manipulation yourself. Just rest in his grip and then spend your energies focusing on the question, how can I please God in this scenario? What do I know he wants me to do? What would be a good representation of the Lord Jesus Christ in this situation? Rather than fighting for control, how can I show that I trust him and I'm just seeking to obey and and please him in this scenario of life? Because God is greater than the manipulative tactics of wicked men, we can trust him and we can walk in his good works. Well, this is just the first scene in our story, and in the next scene, uh, we are now in Caesarea. So everybody's headed north from Jerusalem. Uh, Festus is there. The Jews who have authority have traveled there. Paul's there, and it's time for the trial. We, we encounter this all in verse 6. After 10 days, Festus traveled north to Caesarea, and sitting on the judgment seat, and I want you to imagine this, Luke paints a picture for us here, Festus is sitting on what's called the bema seat. Maybe you've heard that phrase before. It's actually the same word used when describing the judgment seat of Christ. And it was part of Roman, uh, the Roman setup. The, the governor of that area had a seat, and it represented authority. Paul, in this section, is actually going to call it Caesar's judgment seat because when you sat on this judgment seat, it represented the fact that you had been granted authority to make decisions. So Festus is the one sitting on the judgment seat. That's an important part in this scene. He commands that Paul be brought in verse 7 then. We read the Jews are there and they lay many serious complaints against him. This time Luke doesn't tell us all the individual complaints, but we'll see later in Paul's response it probably had to do with the law, the temple, and Roman society in general where Paul says he's innocent in all three categories. Uh, So they make these charges against Paul, but the key phrase in verse 7 is that they cannot prove any of it. Now, that should be the end of the scene right there. They can't prove any of it. Paul, in verse 8, answers for himself, and again, he addresses those three categories, neither against the law, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar, have I offended in anything at all. So that's really where the story should end. Uh, in, in Roman judicial systems, it was innocent until proven guilty. And so if a court case came up like this and uh, the prosecution, you know, brings their charges, but they have no evidence whatsoever, what does the judge do? He throws the case out. It was the same in the Roman period of time as well. This case should just be thrown out. There's, there's no evidence for what they are charging him. Paul himself states he's innocent, so it's one word against another. There's no proof. Trial goes to the innocent. Paul's released. Okay, so that's what should happen. But notice what happens in verse 9. But Festus, wanting to do the Jews a favor, answered Paul and said, Are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and there be judged before me concerning these things? This is a massive shift, change of direction. Right? Again, the scene is headed one direction. Paul's innocent, there's no charge, they don't have any proof, Festus is on the judgment seat, all eyes turn to Festus, but Luke points out the contrast, but 
Festus, he does something surprising. Even though Festus is on the judgment seat, he actually asks for Paul's permission for something. Did you notice that? Festus is the one in charge, but he actually says to Paul, are you willing to go down to Jerusalem? Governors sitting on the judgment seat don't talk that way, okay? This is a complete surprise. This is a complete turn of events. Paul should be thrown out, but now he wants to do the Jews a favor. He certainly could have just said, we're moving this trial to Jerusalem, and you could have just done that. But he asks a question, and as we'll see, Paul's able to say no. <laughs> in the last scene, Paul's actually the one in charge. That's how massively things shift here. So again, I think we see God's sovereign hand in this. As the path is headed one direction, Festus now gives Paul this question, are you willing to go down to Jerusalem? And I, I think there's a number of reasons for that. The big one is God's sovereign. Another reason is the trial has gone far enough now that it's very clear Paul is innocent. And so if he, you know, if he goes on with his trial, if he says we're going to have a new trial in Jerusalem, it's kind of clear that he's corrupt, you know, that he's not doing his job. Uh, so whatever the reason is, this is a big surprise. And it reminds us, number two today, that God is greater than the unjust schemes of wicked rulers. All Festus is doing here is trying to please the Jews. Now, why he didn't do them a favor when they were down in Jerusalem, right? This all doesn't make sense, except that there's a sovereign God arranging what's happening here. So Festus says, are you willing and as we'll see in the next scene, Paul says no. This ironic turn of events is a reminder that God is greater than the schemes of men. Here, it's something that doesn't really make a whole lot of sense, and yet we see God's hand behind it. He's greater than Festus's injustice. We all have those it's-not-fair scenarios, right? It's not fair. Maybe you can remember those times as a, as a kid, right? It's not fair. My sibling got this and I didn't get this. Well, as I mentioned, uh, Carrie and I were in Florida this week and um, we went to uh, something that Disney has there called Disney Springs. It's a, it's a free kind of outdoor shopping area, uh, restaurants and stores and things like that. And, uh, you know, at least 50% of the stores are Disney stores. Uh, and so we're, we're wandering through Disney Springs and it's full of, you know, families and, and little kids. And we went through one store in particular that was just packed with, you know, all the favorite Disney characters. And so you could go from section to section with the Disney, Disney characters and find your favorite character on a backpack or as a stuffed animal or, you know, you name it, they had it and you could buy it there, right? And so it's just interesting wandering through the store and just kind of watching, you know, people watching, right, as you're, as you're going through the store and uh, catching little scenes from different families and, um, you know, what seemed to have caught a lot of the kids is what I would call Disney syndrome, Right? Or I want this, or oh, there's that, I want that, right? And I'm just imagining from the parent's perspective, you know, as the dollar signs are just ticking by, you know, oh my goodness, this is getting expensive. And at some point, the parent has to say, no, we can't do that. And oh, it's not fair, you know, and the tears are flowing. And, uh, you know, I want to follow my heart, but your heart can't afford it, so leave it alone, right? Disney syndrome had crept in, uh, in in many of the scenarios. It's not fair, right? 
This happens to us. We, we get so focused in on our perspective of life, we, we feel like we're not being treated fairly. Now, that's kind of funny on a, on a small level about buying things and things we want as kids and so forth, but even as adults, things happen. Things go a certain way that are, that are genuinely not fair. It's just not just. We live in a world where injustice is prevalent. Two people apply for a job, and the one who doesn't deserve it as much gets it. Or a a person in a company gets let go, even though they've been one of the most productive employees there. Injustice surrounds us. You don't have to think very hard about scenarios in your life where you faced that kind of injustice, where, where people who have some degree of power, some degree of authority, have not handled things fairly. Isn't it encouraging to remember that even when those in power use their power for injustice, there remains a sovereign God who's in control even over that. He's greater than the injustice of unjust rulers. Now, we see this around us on the global scale, right? You don't have to think very hard about politics to (laughs) realize there's injustice going on. I mean, it's easier to think of politicians that aren't under criminal investigation than it is to think of a list of those that are under criminal investigation. The list is long. We can think back to unjust declarations from a government, mandates, things like that. Taxation is not always fair, is it? Or we could think of our friends uh, in India, our missionaries to India, who are ministering in states where there are anti-conversion laws, right, that you can't change from one religion to Christianity. Talk about not fair. That's legitimately not fair. That's injustice at the deepest level. These kinds of things happen in our world, not to mention the the wars that are going on globally. Injustice is present, and yet God remains sovereign over all of it. He's still faithfully unfolding His plan, and no unjust act of any ruler can thwart God's perfect plan. God indeed has granted authority to these rulers to uphold what is good and to put down what is evil. But many times these authorities get things backwards. They get it upside down. But God remains on their throne. Their evil deeds can't thwart his perfect plan. And they will one day give account for their actions because God remains sovereign. And so in the midst of injustice, We can rest in his grip. We can trust him. He holds us. No one can touch you unless God allows it. And even then, it's completely restrained to allow only what is good and loving for you. We come to the final scene in verses 10 through 12. And you remember the the way the previous scene closed is that Festus actually sort of handed control of the room over to Paul. Paul, are you willing to go down to Jerusalem? And so in this final scene, Paul's the one who's actually in charge. Look at a strange turn of events. Paul's the one describing how this is going to work. Here's how it's going to go down, Festus. (laughs) I love this. Verse 10, Paul said, I stand at Caesar's judgment seat, right? So there he is before Festus, and he's just like, look, Festus, this is Caesar's justice seat, not even yours. 
okay? This is Caesar's judgment seat, and this is where I ought to be judged. I'm a Roman citizen. I've done nothing wrong, so it's time for the right judgment. You're, you're supposed to release me as an innocent man. I stand before Caesar's judgment seat where I ought to be judged. To the Jews, I have done no wrong, as you very well know. I mean, think about that. He's like instructing the guy on the judgment seat. You know, Paul's in control of the room here. Verse 11, for if I'm an offender or have done anything deserving of death, I do not object to dying. But if there's nothing in these things of which these men accuse me, no one can deliver me to them. I appeal to Caesar. Now, that last phrase is where we find our interesting turn in this scene. Think it through with me. If we follow Paul's logic here, what Paul should have said at the end was, if I have done nothing deserving of any charges, then release me, right? That's what I would have said. Listen to it again, verse 11. If there is nothing in these things of which these men accuse me, release me. Again, that's where it should be going, but Paul says something different. No one can deliver me to them. I appeal to Caesar. I think Paul has figured out what God is doing behind the scenes. I think Paul, in that moment, has figured out, okay, if Festus takes me to Jerusalem, they're probably still planning to kill me on the road. If he releases me, they're probably still planning to kill me on the road. Right? So either a transfer to Jerusalem or release as an innocent man could lead to his death. And Paul, I think here, probably figures out, ah, I see how God is protecting me, and I think I see how he's going to get me to Rome. And so rather than saying, release me, Paul kind of realizes no one can deliver me to them. The reason this is going so strangely is that Festus, you don't even have the power to release me to them. God's in charge here, so I appeal to Caesar, right? It's really cool how it unfolds. I think Paul sort of figures all that out, and again, we don't know for sure. It's like like the book of Esther, we see God behind the scenes in all of this. So Paul says, I appeal to Caesar. Now, in Rome, this was something that had been allowed through their history is that somebody in trial could appeal to the next level up. We can understand that it works the same way in our court system as well. Well, Festus was actually the highest in command under Caesar, you know, for his region. And so the next one up was actually Caesar himself. So Paul is using his right to appeal. Now, the other side of that is that the judge didn't always have to grant the appeal, right? So he, Festus, goes to his council, and they confer together in verse 12, and uh, they make their decision, and we sort of know what it's going to be already. Paul's figured it out too. Uh, and they come, he comes back to Paul, you've appealed to Caesar, to Caesar you shall go. God is working behind the scenes, and another scene just goes completely different than you would expect, but we see God's hand watching over Paul. God is greater than all, and no one can snatch us from his hands. I love Paul's statements here. No one can deliver me to them. It gives that sense, that the word that no one is able, actually is a word that has to do with power. No one has the power to deliver me to their hands, right? Why? Because Paul knows he's in the Father's hands. 
No one has the power to take Paul out of the Father's hands and deliver him to the hands of the Jews. Not even Festus on his judgment seat. (laughs) And so Paul, with control of the room, points attention to the fact that none of them have true power. None of you can deliver me into their hands. God's in charge here. God's in charge here. God is greater than all, and no one can snatch us from his hands. As many of you know, Carrie uh, went through a health challenge recently, and you, you prayed for her, and we appreciate that, and uh, she's doing well. Uh, you might have even been greeted by her this morning on your way in. Uh, so thank you for your prayers. Uh, she's yeah, making really good progress, and we appreciate your ongoing prayers for that. When we were in the, the deepest throes of that health challenge, it was one of those periods of life where you don't feel like a loving, caring God is holding you in his hands, right? You, you've been there. You've been in those scenarios where based on what's happening, it just doesn't feel good. <laughs> it doesn't feel like this is God being caring and kind and helpful and all of that. And so it was a good reminder for us of the importance of fighting to believe truth even when life doesn't feel like it, right? To remember that God indeed does hold us and that he's working for good and that this is somehow part of his plan and that it's, it's going to lead to his glory and our good and, and we can trust him in this. And it's been fun to watch, now looking back on that, the ways that God has given us little glimpses of how he was caring for us behind the scenes. You know, things that you didn't realize along the way that later you come back and realize, oh my goodness, wow, if that had gone differently, who knows you know, what would have happened, but God provided and watched over us. I'll give you one example. Uh, when all of this first started, um, Carrie had just very normal pneumonia symptoms, okay, so... Uh, not pleasant, don't misunderstand me, but cough and, you know, fever and a lot of the normal pneumonia things. Um, And so one of the great challenges of of what she actually had was that it masks as just plain old pneumonia. And so people can be treated for that and it doesn't do any good and the person gets worse and worse and worse. And so later in the whole story, we ended up talking with other people. It's called histoplasmosis. We ended up talking with other people who had the same thing. And in their version of the story, they didn't get diagnosed until you know, weeks into their illness. And one even shared a story how she had to spend a week in intensive care because it had gotten so bad and they didn't know what it was. Now, in our case, it was actually our first appointment that they figured out that that's what it was, that they suspected that that's what it was. And we had no idea that that was God's kindness, God's sovereign care to to get that diagnosis right from the start and to be able to treat it in that way when it doesn't always go that way. And it was a good reminder to us that even in those times when you don't feel like you're in God's hands, you are still in God's hands. And he's working for good behind the scenes. And that doesn't mean you'll know what that good is, but you trust that he is, and our proof is in the gospel, because gospel truth never changes. God saw us at our worst, in our sin, and he didn't just see the sins you committed up till today, he saw the sins you'll commit through your whole life, everything you will do as well. He saw your complete depravity, and that's when he chose to set his love upon you and send his son to die for you. So, No circumstance, no challenge in your life can ever defeat or mess up that kind of love 
from God. It's not based on your goodness or your worthiness or your circumstances. It's just based on his love, and so it won't change. So friend, I want you to be assured today that no matter what you face and whether or not you feel like you're in the Father's hands, if you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ for salvation, then you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that God holds you fast. I love Charles Spurgeon's quote. Remember this. Had any other condition been better for you than the one in which you are, divine love would have put you there. Let me say that one more time. Remember this. Had any other condition been better for you than the one in which you are, divine love would have put you there. We have that in a picture in our home as a reminder of God's faithful love when we go through difficult times. God is greater than all, and no one can snatch us from his hands. The third point is meant to remind us of Jesus' words in John chapter 10, verses 29 and 30, verses you're familiar with, where Jesus says this, my Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. No one is greater than the Father. This includes every human being that's ever existed. Your neighbors, co-workers, the friend who betrayed you, your supervisor, local law enforcement, state officials, drug lords, mafia bosses, politicians, the president, kings, every human being who's ever lived, whoever will live, is beneath the Father. He is greater than all. This includes every creature that's ever existed even every spiritual being, which we have descriptions of in Scripture, but have not seen angels, demons, Satan himself, a created being, falls under the rule of our Father. And so we agree with the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 8 that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Friend, you're safe in his hands. He holds your salvation forever. You can't be lost to the evil one, and you also can't be harmed Now, like Job or Paul or Peter, God may allow you to suffer physical pain and even death for the name of Christ, but you're safe through all of that. No one can harm you. It can only do good for you, and God's grace will be sufficient through it, and it will be gain for your present growth into the image of Jesus Christ and your future glory in his kingdom. So do not squirm, worry, or despair you are eternally safe in his grip. So trust him. This can be difficult. We must acknowledge that God may allow hard things in our path of service to him. But remember Paul's words, no one can deliver me to them. Paul could not be transferred to the hands of the Jews. He would forever be in God's care. It was the Lord's will for Paul to die. If it, excuse me, if it was the Lord's will for Paul to die at the hands of the Jews, so be it. Even then, Paul would remain in the Lord's caring, faithful hands, tempering the pain and working for Paul's good. We can trust him. So whatever you're facing today that tempts you to doubt the strength 
and the care of God's sovereign hands. Your health, your job, something going on in your family, relationships that aren't right, things in society around you, what's going on in the world globally, whatever it is that tempts you to doubt the strength of God's hand and His grip in your life, run again to the reminder that He holds you fast. His grip never fails. And gospel truth is proof that God's love for you will never fail. Father, we thank you so much for your love for us. We pray that if there's anyone here today that does not know the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior, that they would experience your love by trusting in Jesus as Savior. And then, as Jesus says so well in John chapter 10, to become one of your sheep, a sheep of the good shepherd held tightly, held fast in your good hands and in the hands of your Son. Help us to trust you. Father, with whatever we face, may we rest in your grip and in your sovereign care. And as we rest then to find the strength to walk forward by faith, obeying and pleasing you in all these things. We ask for your help. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. For more resources, visit our website, mbcgrimes.org. May the word of Christ dwell in you richly, and to God be the glory.